Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship sponsors a member of the Lighthouse Writing Community to a full year of literary support and involvement at Lighthouse. This fellowship was formed in honor of the great Alice Maxine Bowie, who believes everyone has a right to a meaningful education, that much of our most meaningful education comes from literature, and that the world benefits from hearing stories. The fellowship includes four eight-week workshops per year, as well as the choice of either registration for the Grand Lake Retreat or an all-access pass to the Lighthouse Lit Fest. Fiction writer Tessa Cheek was the recipient of the 2014-2015 Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship. Tessa's fellowship culminated with a public reading and celebration on August 1, 2015, during which she was properly feted and shared the fruits of the project she has worked on over the course of the year with an appreciative crowd in the Lighthouse Grotto. I wanted to do uh, an informal bio real quick of Tessa. So um, I've gotten to know Tessa over the last uh, about year. Um, she came to Lighthouse, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, something like that, with uh, some uh, uh, an idea for a collaboration with uh, the Colorado Independent. We did a news poetry thing here, and it was it was wonderful, and Tessa was uh, the host, and I was like, who is this Tessa? She was just uh, very, very sharp and witty, and uh, could think very quickly and well on her feet, and uh, but was also, you know, very articulate as well, and I was like, oh, who is this? Um, this is this is great. We should do more stuff together, and then um, then she wins for uh, the, the Bowie Fellowship, right? And about seven months ago, she uh, contacted me again with this idea of hers that we uh, ended up calling uh, Write Denver. Um, I think at first it was, you know, writing the city or something, something, something like that along those lines. <laughs> writing Denverine? I don't even know why that was even thrown out there once. Huh. Uh, <laughs> So um, and it was like wow this 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 sounds like a sweet project we started we started working on it um, together because more and more I personally like place place making writing as as well as like uh, writing uh, while doing these walking um, tours right around uh, urban areas so anyway. But then the project got like really unruly really quickly because we're both kind of idea people and we, we uh, Tessa was contacting like all these folks in the government and um, it, it, and it was great. But I was also like I I don't know the the, the my the last seven seven months of my life has just been like trying to catch up to Tessa cheeks because uh, just because she's so. <laughs> she's just she's just so she's so good at uh going all the way and knowing knowing where there is um like money to be found and she found money and we have this grant now that she pretty much wrote by herself that we submitted for the Imagine 2020 grant in Denver and Tessa got that for us so now we are uh launching this right Denver so um I want to just read you this uh uh this quote of Tessa's um that has to do with uh, has to do with Wright Denver um, that we submitted uh, for um, a press release a couple weeks ago I think and that the uh, Westward picked up uh, for our first Wright Denver thing that happened last Wednesday on the 29th. Okay, here's what Tessa says: I applied to the Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship because the Lighthouse had taught me so much, not just about writing, uh, but how about how to flourish in a city, specifically Denver. Somewhere apart from work and home is this beacon of creative civic life, what urban planners called the third space. 
I knew that inhabiting that space, that community helped me write more, hone my craft, and get inspired, but I wanted to be a contributor as well. The same can be said, I think, of the city writ large. As Denver continues to evolve at an ever-increasing rate, I think it's critically important for Denverites to remember, record, and honor our history, even as we celebrate living here today and imagine an even more exciting home tomorrow. Everyone, even if they don't consider themselves writers per se, should have the opportunity to be a storyteller of their home. For me, that's what Write Denver is all about, narrating the city together, including as many voices as possible, celebrating the beautiful and the challenging, and dreaming up a city where we can all flourish. Yeah? Um, so, uh, official by... Oh, I, w- I also want to say a little bit about uh, the Alex Maxine Fellowship, and then I'll go into uh, Tessa's bio. Um, the Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship sponsors a member of the Lighthouse writing community for a full year of literary support and involvement at Lighthouse. This fellowship was formed in honor of the great Alice Maxine Bowie, who believes everyone has a right to a meaningful education, that much of our most meaningful education comes from literature, and that the world benefits from hearing stories. The Alice Maxine Bowie Fellow receives four eight-week workshops per year, and registration, lodging, and board for the Grand Lake Retreat, or a juried or non-juried gold pass to the to the uh, lit fest. So uh, Tessa went to Grand Lake, and uh, it was awesome hanging out with her. Um, uh, there was uh, there's there's scotch, I think, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. Another another plus for for Tessa, she can hold her liquor. Okay. Um, Tessa Cheek is a creative writer in the 2014-2015 Lighthouse Alice Maxine Bowie Fellow in Fiction. When not making up stories, she's worked as a political reporter for the Colorado Independent and written a book of essays about sustainable development and architecture along the Great Wall of China. This fall, she's heading to the Mystic East, a.k.a. Virginia, to pursue an MFA at the Jackson Center for Creative Writing. You can read more of her words via her website, tessacheek.com. Let's welcome her. I'm going to read this on my phone, which will be funny to some people. <laughs> um, I can't decide if I should go vertical or horizontal. I'm going to go vertical. This is probably... So tiny. Okay. <laughs> so um, I've been working on. I, I came into the AMB Fellowship with this idea that I was going to write a short story collection called "Proximate Strangers," which actually I think I was just really obsessed with the word "proximate." <laughs> I loved it. I was like, I think I love this word enough to write an entire short story collection. <laughs> That's no is the answer, <laughs> or I don't, or I'm not there yet. It could be in the works, but. Um, over the year, I took these really, really wonderful, I took a lot of short story workshops. I had a lot to work on in terms of the form. Um, I was mostly coming out of creative nonfiction, so I really, like, was, if I, like, hit upon a good form for a short story, it was because I, like, was really lucky, or I had, like, stabbed in the dark for, like, nine months. Um, so this year was good for me in that way. It's also, it was also good for me because I actually started writing very heavy in genre. When I was in high school, I would like lock my mom out of the room at 5 a.m. because she was totally up and wanting to like spy on me at that time <laughs> and write this. Um... <laughs> she wasn't. She's a late riser. <laughs> um... <laughs> I, I wrote this uh, like fantasy fiction novel 
and then I w- went to college and I was like, burn it! <laughs> no one can ever know. I'll never have sex if they see this. <laughs> um, anyway, so I'm coming back to my roots, which is like weird genre stuff. So this is weird, but it's darker because I'm older now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this is called The Devil's Terrible Nearness. It's by me. <laughs> In the document, I'm just reading what I'm seeing. Okay. It's not funny. (laughs) The hollow sound of a spoon swinging round an empty cereal bowl wakes us at 3 a.m. Outside my screenless window, the city sky burned orange. Something large and dark had had leapt the empty lower pane. Clotted shadow. Hungry night. My guy, he shot from the bed to scare the big cat off. It was easy. He lay back down with a heavy hand on my heart and said, Sloan, shh, it's nothing. Back down to sleep like an anchor he went, but frozen, I could not follow. All night, I stared at the black in panic, seeing everywhere the lunging form of a hostile creature. Only my open eyes, the tense air of my watchfulness, kept the beast at bay. In the clean light of day, I told myself once and again, this would all seem a bad dream, and crazy. The sky bleached, separating the flat kitchen roof from the night. Strange comfort, to see the seated cat, tail flicking, staring into my shadowed room while the world revealed itself behind her. She was smaller than I imagined. She was still everywhere but the cheeks and eyes. By now, I'd bitten through my own mouth, and it all filled with iron. The cat had what Sister Lacey would call the devil's eyes. They see most clearly what is dark. Delphic is the trigger of latent memory. Because imagine you buried something by a creek, buried it very, very deep in a box with a lock. Then every day you walked over that spot until you forgot it was special. Meanwhile, water erodes the shore for two decades. Time uncovers what you believed it had erased. One day, or one long night, you stub your toe on the corner of your surfacing secret, and the lid pops right off. What's inside? I will tell you in order to tell myself. I will make us both do the bad thing. You and your three ladies were nine years old when you daily played the circle game. You liked to pretend the cat was nine, too. Woolly, white, and matted, she stared blind through cloudy blue eyes. She nested beneath the saggy rectory porch. She'd wrestle out and brush herself along your calves when you stood in your circle, eyes shut. You, had, you held Callie's hand on the left and Lish's on the right. Your plaid skirts meshed at the pleats, one indistinguishable from another. Donna stood across the circle and would sometimes peek out one eye, just as you did, a reversed wink. Sisters, are you here with me? asked Donna. The sky may be bright as orange and the ground knee deep in ash, but do not be afraid. We are at the foot of the mountain. You had been the one to put it to a vote, and Donna had won. She was the chief describer of the other place. The other place ran adjacent to your place. Your listing Catholic school, your identical bungalows, your baleful example of a city. But the other place went on forever and echoed as if empty. If there was a town in the other place, it was on the horizon, and the living could not reach it. For months you had been playing the game, performing for each other the hot whispers from the beyond. Only in the last few weeks had you agreed on the foreboding mountains in which Inus, sinister incarnation of the devil's own intentions, was surely hiding waiting to be killed. 
In the other place, there was only one road, really a dry creek, leading into the mountains, you said. The way will be treacherous, with sinkholes and apparitions designed to lure you into the weakest ground. It will take many days to reach the foothills. Kitty's here in the other place with us, added Lish, dropping your hand to reach for the cat. She's not blind. She just sees how the other place overlaps with our place. She can take us to Inus. He's here, in our place. Um, Lish, said Donna. No way, don't be dumb, said Callie. Last week, Donna talked to a wind spirit who said Inus was up in the mountains of the damned, and I asked Father Jones about the mountains of the damned, and he said they are very real, and that God sends, shut up, Callie. He squeezed Lish's hand. Yes, I see the white cat. She's walking up the creek with her creek road with her tail held high. Inus is here among us, Lish said. I know he's here. I've seen him. Open your eyes, said Donna. You've seen him? You took Lish's hand back. Yes. How do you know? What does he look like? Where? I saw him last week, parked in my alley. He has a blue car. Well, great. Thanks so much. Callie dropped your hand to scratch the base of her red braid. Lish, maybe you have not been paying very good attention. Inus is the devil today, working evil with his easy words and ways, walking our hearts and walking our minds, like Father Jones talks about. I don't really think... Donna, would you just let Lish talk for even two seconds? You tapped Donna's chest, hard. It felt good. If Inus walks our hearts and minds, then Lish is right. He could cross over from the other place into ours. God does that all the time. God works miracles in our place, and Inus works their opposite on the devil's behalf. This fight might have gone on a long time, both you and Donna being experts on the devil's terrible nearness. But Lish's hand was so wet and so small in yours, you'd, want to hug, you'd wanted to hug her for days because she hadn't been talking, but there was no hugging allowed at school, so you scooped up the white cat and foisted it on her. Tell us, you said. He's taller than Father Jones, but much skinnier. He has almost white hair. You can see his scalp through it. He's not very old, only his teeth are very, very old, like he stole them from a dead man. He has a blue car. But he's Inus? Lish buried her face in the cat, and the creature appeared to speak from her arms. You tightened the circle. On a no-dinner night last week, Mama was at the restaurant, and Dad and Nikki were out. I found these quarters in Dad's Lazy Boy, so I go to the corner store to get myself some Laffy Taffy because my stomach hurt. You all nodded sagely. Anyway, there's this blue car parked in the alley all blocking the sidewalk. Like a light blue car, how everyone says, a robin's egg. Anyway, I was just walking around, and then he reached out the window and grabbed my arm. Oh. Not hard, just like to get my attention. He was only a few years older than Nikki, a grown-up though, and he had that white, white hair. He said, sorry, but do you know the way to the park? And I was going to say, which park, mister? Because there's the park by the hospital and there's a park down by the blind kids' school. (laughs) But he had his hand on his pink thing. And I just saw it and I got scared and I said, I don't know, sorry, a bunch of times. Lish, what do you mean his thing, you asked? His disgusting dick, said Donna. And she looked right at you. Then what happened? Nothing. You were walking home from school, up the mostly dry creek, thinking about the circle game, when you heard a cat screaming from the other side of the water. It was easy to cross there, even in saddle shoes. A cottonwood had fallen shore to shore in the last flood. The opposite bank was more Lish's neighborhood, where the houses sat right on the ground like they had no foundations. Everyone parked a car in their backyard. You scrambled up behind a Victorian that leaned toward the creek. You'd been there for a fourth-grade Easter party last year and seen a homeless man bathing shirtless in the river. You gave him chocolate eggs by rolling them down the hill. He put a finger over his lips to say, Our secret. The cat cried from up a red gravel alley. Hail Mary, full of grace, you said. Though I walk through the valley, 
You weren't 20 feet down the alley when you saw the ass of a boxy, egg-blue sedan poking out from the weeds. The cat tugged from the back tire. You couldn't see how she was caught from so far away, but she cried and she cried and she moved less and less. You were not shaking. You looked at the cat, white cat, were her eyes blue-blind. You ran back to the river. You rehearsed the phrases of your favorite, most beautiful Spanish teacher, Sister Lacey. Madre de Dios, ruega por nosotros pecadores. Madre de Dios, ruega por nosotros pecadores. Madre de Dios, ruega por nosotros. And when she'd brought you safely across the water, Madre de la Gracia, Madre llena de Santa Alegría, Madre de la Gracia, Madre llena de Santa Alegría, Madre de la Gracia, Madre llena de Santa Alegría, Madre, 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 close your eyes, said Donna. Her hands were white around Lish and Callie's. You bent your head low in the circle, curtains of hair. I know where Inus is. I don't want to play anymore, said Callie. You don't really know where Inus lives because Inus isn't real. Callista, you are lacking in faith, said Donna. I know where his house is. He tortures cats there. I prayed about this. Mother Mary will protect us. We can't get hurt if we go there. Only Inus can get hurt. It's like Father Jones says, we are angels of light, said Lish. So sweet, Lish. How the hair at the nape of her neck did curl. In the neighborhoods by the river where you all grew up, the mamas cared how long it took their babies to get home from school. But the mamas also worked. They knew you got home when you called their shift manager, Chuck or Paul or Rudy, who passed the word along because your mamas were always busy. On that bad afternoon, the sky was gray and the light was green and you all lied to your mamas from the payphone at the 7-Eleven by the river, except Callie, who went straight home. Then you and Donna led the way up the creek bed with Lish trailing behind, looking closely at the water. We need weapons, Donna said. I have a knife. You both stopped walking to look at Lish's knife. She stole from her brother Nicky's room. The knife had a hard-to-push release button and a lot of black gunk on the tip. Donna used it to sharpen three sticks, each a few feet long and thin enough to wrap your small fists around. Meanwhile, Lish made a wreath of forget-me-nots. She crowned you with it. When you got to the alley, the car was gone, but not the cat. Stop. Kneel, you said. You planted your stick in the dirt by the flat end of the carcass. Your cat body is dead, but your spirit is with the cat god. We need to bury her, said Lish. You found a broken trowel in Inus's messy yard. You were unafraid to look there. You picked the middle of his parking spot on purpose, so he'd see the grave when he pulled in. You dug the hole while Lish and Donna kept watch. There was nothing like a cross around only a long shard of mirror to mark the head. That small mound in the occluding dark, the blocks-off shouts of all the daddies home from work, cumbia out a parked car, the kick of a lawnmower. When you heard the near hiss of a car turning onto gravel, you were not surprised. You uprooted your stick and, he- and hid in the weeds to watch. Through the windshield, Inus looked just as Lish had described, bleached, wet, thin, like the sort of man who would show a nine-year-old his thing while asking for directions to the park. He stopped the car in the alley and got out to kneel by the grave. The air smelled heavy. He picked up Lish's circle of flowers. You saw Donna walk across the taillights, and you weren't afraid. You stepped out of the brush like coming up to bat at softball, his head just at tea height. You murmured, Madre de Dios, ruega por los pecadores. And you swung. It wouldn't have been so serious if he had not caught you in the mirror, if he had not looked back at you over his shoulder. The quick point of the stick caught in his eye and stuck. You tripped forward. Mother, it felt like a fall. 
The stick met no resistance, just went back and back. It rained that night. It rained on the mountain scars where the old mines had been tapped out. It rained in the canyons where the trees had all been eaten by fire. Scorched earth resists much. Everyone and everything must run across it. The gutters pooled and the streets filled. The water crept up the lawns and slipped into the kitchens of the low houses. Your mother was trapped at the restaurant, and you spent the night in the corner of the attic. You sucked your thumb with your face pressed against the rafters. The run home had soaked you to the bone. At the bend in the swelling creek, Lish and Donna ran off the other way. Nobody said a word. Nobody looked in your eyes. You lay in the attic all night, waiting for the maelstrom to erase your brain. You said your rosary once, twice, a hundred times. In the morning, the rain dwindled, but everyone could see their lights didn't turn on and their phones didn't work and their cars had drowned. Your mother got home that afternoon. She just walked through the water. Oh, my little kitten. You pushed mud around the living room with a broom. You heard many people died in the flood. A woman asleep on a park bench had tied her belongings to herself, and when the waters receded, there she lay, unmoved and unmoving. Cars scattered around her, pieces of road and tree and house. The Victorian fell into the river and cracked like an egg. A dead man was found, clutching a crushed cat, a tree branch stuck in his eye. Two little girls were pulled from the torrent a long way downstream. Both survived, though they never spoke again. People said the trauma of near drowning had a psychosomatic effect on their vocal cords, but nobody really had the money to double-check that theory. (laughs) They'd struck their small skulls so, so many times. Father Jones transferred them to the school for the blind, the deaf, the mute. You heard they kept mostly together, mostly to themselves. You saw them playing once, a long way off at the park by their new school. Donna sprinted down the field, and Lish ran after, full tilt. Lish's hand brushed the back brushed her back, and Donna froze so hard she fell right over. Lish laughed and laughed. Thank you, Tessa. Um, I'm going to invite Andrew Dupree, yeah, up, uh, Lighthouse's program director. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Tessa. I got to spend the week with uh, Tessa and Grand Lake, and I left that week feeling optimistic about the young people in the world. (laughs) Both that um, you were raised right, and the the part where whoever raised you raised you, and then the part where you're raising yourself is all going really well. There was one point when she read in Grand Lake where uh, one of the instructors was sitting in front of me and she passed back a note, which I I haven't had that experience since like high school. And I opened the note and it just said, Tessa Cheek, exclamation point. Uh, because what she was reading was so transcendent, and it, it just really captured this great mind and this great talent. And now she's going off into the world, and I sent her with that little note in case she ever needs it. And I don't think you will, but <laughs> we're so proud of you. Um, this fellowship is something we were approached by a donor who wanted to stay anonymous and has since left the state, so we could blab her name everywhere and she would never know. Um, 
but she's still involved, and she's part of the review committee that goes through just this phenomenal group of applications we get every year. This is the fifth year, and um, I think we're the the committee is always pretty good at narrowing it down to like the top thirty, <laughs> and that feels kind of easy. And then once you get there, it feels like a case could be made for a lot of writers. And so many people are so talented. And it just feels kind of like an honor to read their stuff. And then the flip side of that is it feels kind of bad to not be able to award it to every single worthy person. Um, And for that reason, we always have some runners-up and some honorable mentions. And and I always joke that the the runners up really do have to step in if the person who's awarded the fellowship <laughs> cannot you know accomplish what they need. But that hasn't happened. Um, so anyway, so this year um, I'm going to start with the honorable mentions. They're all getting. You will eventually get a little you know thing that is written. And somehow I didn't get all those done. So uh, right now we're going to just ask you to stand, and and I'm going to read a little bit about what the review committee said. Um, First of all, honorable mention, Kathy Bell. Her lovely prose and achingly tough story in the sweetest kidnapping earned high marks from the review committee. Everyone noted her volunteerism for Lighthouse. You guys probably have never come to a party where where Kathy was not volunteering, except for maybe this one where you got to just attend, Um, as well as the raw power that moves her writing. So Kathy's going to get to take some workshops and, and do some stuff at Lighthouse as part of her honorable mention. Yay. Is Taylor here? Oh, you were here. Okay. Um, Her memoir, Medicine, tracks her time living off the grid in the desert. Um, One of the comments was, I think her prose here is on lock, and her story is a fascinating and very American one. Good history of engagement in Lighthouse and great plans to give back. We're excited to have Taylor here and part of Lighthouse. Krista Hanley, whose memoir, Unshattered, Life Before and After Columbine, earned raves from the reviewers, including one who wrote, I like her prose a lot and feel that her story is a critical one, particularly here in Colorado. We've all heard it, um, who went to Grand Lake. What a powerful story, Miss Krista Hanley. And we had two runners-up this time. Uh, so our, one of the runners-up, second, I guess we're doing second and first. Second runner-up um, is Chris Walker, a talented freelance magazine writer at work on at least two narrative nonfiction pieces about crime and intrigue in Mexico and the American Southwest. Of Chris, the donor herself said, here is a guy who is clearly going places, so talented. I loved his application and thought his piece was excellent. Mr. Chris Walker. And first runner-up, Jeanette Matusiak. Um, 
the donor flagged her application and said it was so strong, thought her piece was compelling and daring and sad. Another reviewer said she's a wonderful writer and an all-around gem. I love what she's done here with the pithy CNF hybrid form. We'll have to talk about that later. Uh, Her meditations on care, long history of connection and involvement at Lighthouse. Jeanette Matuzia. And so this year's um, Alice Maxine Bowie Fellow in Creative Nonfiction is Cynthia Wong, who some of you may know. She came and did a primer for us on Kazuo Ishiguro when he was here. She's, she's a scholar and a professor at uh, the University of Colorado at Denver. Um, here's what the donor had to say about Cynthia. The prose was clean and tight, and I thought her storytelling was the strongest of any of the applicants. I love that she has a history of service already and clearly is willing to serve. My bias for giving it to Cynthia is her story. Being a widowed single mom who grew up in an immigrant working-class household, I had a strong emotional reaction to her piece, which may explain my vote to give her the fellowship. When the donor says that, we listened. Um, (laughs) Cynthia is writing, this is just me, not the donor. Um, Cynthia is writing a memoir, Grace in Antarctica, about a trip she took a year after her husband's death. Um, This meditation on loss and mourning also weaves in humility and gratitude to reflect the long aftershocks of that trip upon her solo parenting. The book explores the unexpected beacons we uncover about our lives when we dare to unbury the past and embrace the unknown. She's going to come up and give us, kind of as tested last year, a little sneak peek of what she's going to be working on this year. You guys, it's, it's a pleasure to welcome Cynthia Wong. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks so much to the Bowie Fellowship Funder Lighthouse. Um, Andrea, Dan, Tessa, it's going to be a tough act to follow. It's really an honor to be the recipient for 2015. Um, The icebergs rise from the sea and are like jewels glinting in the sun. Penguins leap in and out of the water as they glide along the ship. Seals lounge on loose floes. We see a whale in the far distance. Above are seabirds but I've yet to see an albatross in the wild. I'm here at the bottom of the world, away from my four-year-old daughter, Grace, and my head full of years of reading about explorers and animals in Antarctica. On our last day, we're at Plano Island and see there a lone juvenile king penguin swaying with the icy blasts of wind. Our guide says that it is finishing its molt, but sees that the shrunken cavities throughout his body signify something much more dire. The king is a subantarctic penguin, not meant to be this far south on the icy continent. Why is he alone? Once here, he dared not move, until his feathers come in, or he will drown if he dives into the water. Everybody takes its picture. Now it's beautiful with its silvery gray back with a blackish-brown head decorated with striking orange ear patches. It's pitifully thin. When we look at these pictures back home, this king penguin will already have been dead. We walk a wide circle around the king. We avert attention from this dying penguin as we avoid other beings in the midst of their weakness and devastation. We want to make right these aberrations in the natural world, 
but we look elsewhere and not towards his pain. His suffering is a form of courage that we can never know. Although we persuade ourselves that there might be remedy and resurrection, we bear witness to his moribund isolation. In the dark waters around us, all manners of creatures are struggling for survival. Many are flourishing while others must die. Tonight, our ship, the Maria Yermolova, will shelter us tourists. The moon will cast endless ripples of alternating light on the waters. In the middle of the night, many nautical miles from the sublime Lemaire Channel, we will enter the tumultuous Drake Passage. Pooling rough woolen blankets over me, I will long to return to grace. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you guys for coming. Um, Tessa, good luck with the MFA. Yes. Cynthia, welcome to your fellowship. We're happy to have you. Everyone, there's still uh, some booze left and some food. Have at it. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.